Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome John Bird, who is the founder of a revolutionary magazine called The Big Issue. In September of 1991, he launched The Big Issue along with Gordon Roddick to create a space for homeless people to earn an income again. His interest is to dismantle homelessness. Having been homeless himself, he speaks from the ground of his experience. With a background in printing, he was able to put a totally new paradigm together, which is helping homeless people help themselves. He formed a magazine, but he also formed a foundation to help the homeless during different phases of homelessness, aside from giving them a job. He is adamant about the fact that the homeless should not be treated like pigeons. And he has a lot to say about the distinction between participative and representative democracy. His business paradigm is totally different regarding solving the homelessness problem. Nobody can say it like he can. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome John Bird to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon. Thank you very much indeed. Talk to us a little bit about homelessness from your own experience and what led you to start the big issue and how the big issue is really a paradigm shift in the way homelessness is viewed. Well, my own personal homelessness was due uh, really to uh, uh, the fact that my mother and father, who had six boys, just after the Second World War, um, at a time when really Britain was still recovering from the war. And in fact, we many people were worse off just after the war than, than previous to the war. Uh, um, they, uh, they had a family, they married. We, we were living in the slummiest part of London in the highest um, level of infant mortality in the British Isles. And this was all within two or three miles of the, of, of the Houses of Parliament. And where we lived uh, was full of very poor people who had drink problems, not drug problems, there wasn't much drugs around, a lot of drink problems, lots of violence, uh, um, lots of wife-beating um, and all things like that, and a lot of malnutrition. Uh, and my parents were... Very much, uh, uh, my father was a local guy, um, worked in a distillery. Uh, he, all his family had been in the army um, in, in the First and Second World War. Um, and he was a man who liked to drink and fight and get into trouble and beat his wife on a Friday night. My mother was an Irish woman who came from, from uh, Clare, uh, sorry, from Cork in a place called Mallor. And she'd come over and met this guy and fallen in love. He looked very much like Humphrey Bogart, which obviously is a bit of a plus, especially if you're going to live in a slum. And he, uh, they, they got married, and it was totally unsuitable. Uh, they were not really meant for each other, even though they ended up with each other, and um, they didn't have anybody else. Uh, but they were just not very good parents. They weren't very good at it. They didn't know how to bring children up. They used violence uh, uh, and over-exaggerated, uh, um, you know, um, arguments and fighting and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was the number third child. Uh, we were brought up as Catholics. We were also brought up to hate blacks and Jews and Indians and everybody else who 
London Irish. So it wasn't just a question of being poor, it was a question of, of, um, of thinking poor. And whenever I have um, heard stories and read about the dignity of the poor um, and the tremendous um, sacrifices that the poor make and, and the honor of, of, of poverty, I, I've never, I could never put that in my mind. So the kind of poverty I came from and the kind of homelessness was to some extent uh, the natural outcome of, of quite a, a really screwed up take on life. My mother, we were made homeless when I was five. We had two slum rooms in a, in a house that was built for one middle class family that had fallen to pieces and there were 30 working class families there. Um, and my mother didn't pay the rent. You know, she would rather drink and smoke uh, and hide from the terrible conditions that she lived under. She was not a happy woman. Um, I was eight, homes at five, six, and seven, taken in by the, a Catholic orphanage, uh, Sisters of Charity, and was there for three years. Came out of there, got social housing in a different part of London, which wasn't slummy. Uh, and then started to get into trouble with the police um, and at school. I couldn't read or write. Um, lots of trouble, lots of violence. Um, got involved in a lot of fights and got put into the correctional system. Um, and from the age of 10 onwards, I was on probation. Um, did short, sharp shocks, did boot camps, did all that kind of stuff. Um, my homelessness was really me running away from home because I just could not stand the great detestation. I couldn't stand the life, couldn't stand the people, couldn't stand the violence, uh, couldn't stand the arbitrary nature of it all. And uh, being uneducated and, and rather badly treated, I, uh, I had no answer. There was no way out of it. There was no one to turn to. Um, apart from Jesus, uh, which I had this kind of strange attitude. I thought he was my mate. Uh, and whenever I got uh, arrested for housebreaking or shoplifting or stealing cars, I always thought Jesus was going to help me. So it was a kind of strange way of, of thinking. Anyway, um, left school at 15, had about nine jobs in the space of a few weeks, and was about to join the army because I'd been a, a boy soldier, I mean, I'd been a cadet, um, but they refused me because I had these things hanging over me, and, and then I was given three years, put into a, 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 a kind of penitentiary-type place. Um, got out of that, um, and then, um, actually, I started to paint and draw, and I'd learned to read in a boy's prison. Uh, by, by a prison officer who was was an Indian-looking guy, which was extraordinary because, of course, I'd been led to believe that these people were absolute enemies of us. And so I was I was learnt, taught to read and write by a guy giving me a book and saying, you obviously can't read. Here's a book, here's a pencil, underline all the words that you don't know. Um, and we'll talk about it. So over a couple of months, he, he, he taught me to read and gave me tremendous confidence and though it took me another 15, 10, 15 years to get myself sorted out, I was on the road because I was could educate myself, and I became a, a vociferous reader and started to paint 
draw and listen to, you know, classical music as well as Elvis Presley, and became fascinated with culture and fascinated by the fact that um, I kept, you know, a, a, you know, this idea of, of being a painter and uh, and all that. So I put in a lot of effort while I was inside. When I got out when I was 18, I got a place at art school, which was extraordinary because then, 1964, I uh, had no levels. I had no um, degree, um, uh, paperwork, you know, I had no, sat no exams. And I just got in and they took me in on the merit of my work and I did very well for a short period of time, uh, but got into more trouble because I started spending all my time chasing girls and getting drunk and then I ended up as a father at 19. Um, anyway, the long and the short of it has then followed quite a period of, in the underworld and doing smashing grabs and um, doing stealing money through through uh, fraud and all that. And my big turnaround was when I was 21, I had to leave England and I went to France, which was my first trip ever abroad, apart from to Ireland, which we used to go to quite regularly. Um, and I I met up with a load of Marxist bourgeois, sorry, Marxist, Trotsky's anti-bourgeois people. And when they started to tell me what was wrong with the world, I said, well, it, it's, it's all those Jews, isn't it? I mean, they're the ones and those black people. And they were absolutely appalled. And they, instead of kind of turning against me, they, they argued with me. And, they, and over a period of time, it was extraordinary, I was transformed from being this little chauvinistic, racist, uh, uh, you know, kind of apologist for, for empire building and and, uh, and and chauvinism in, into a Marxist, revolutionary Trotskyist. Uh, and, it, and it was to such an extent I even turned against them because I didn't think they were, they were Marxist enough. So I went from, you know, uh, Jesus to Marx, and it was kind of extraordinary... Uh, conversion because I, it took me a long while to realise I'd just gone from one religion to another. Uh, but 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 I then um, started to really try and understand what was going on in the world. Got involved in the, the condition, the the, the uh, war in Vietnam. Uh, you know, became a, uh, involved in political movement, not just a protester. Even though I did get beaten up at Grosvenor Square. Uh, trying to invade the American embassy, um, which was the fact that the police stopped us was probably a good thing because there was um, loads of Marines in there ready to to, to make dinner of us. Um, but then I got uh, I got really involved in the class struggle, um, and that went on for quite a period of time. I'd in the meanwhile I'd I'd sorted myself out with the police uh, and had um, um, got myself. I'd, I'd been undercover. I mean, I'd lived uh, uh, under a number of pseudonyms for about seven years, got myself sorted out, and by the time I was 27, I got married again. And then I started working, which was, you know, because I'd been in and out of um, jobs. And then eventually, in, in my 30s, I started to, to train myself to be a printer, which meant getting jobs as a printer and then getting the sack almost immediately because they realized I couldn't print. And then I acquired, after about nine jobs, I was quite good at it, not getting sacked, but I was quite good at uh, printing. And then I um, uh, I uh, started to get restless working for a printer. 
uh, and becoming very, very good at it and becoming obsessed with it. Uh, um, and then started publishing magazines and, and newspapers and got involved in distributing uh, um, literature and got involved in things like the Nicaraguan Solidarity Campaign and printing postcards for them and getting involved in uh, you know green issues and and, and uh, gay rights and quite a number of those kind of issues which which uh, and I was a very useful guy because I was a printer and I could do things for nothing uh, uh, and get it designed well and it wouldn't just be some shoddy amateurish thing so uh, uh, so I almost became a kind of businessman for the left uh, and that probably went on until my late 30s um, and early 40s and then I became a student um, uh, because I wanted to catch up with some of my I wanted to learn to be able to write essays better and do all that stuff so I, I went to college and I, I got a degree uh, which was very a very useful degree because it meant it opened a number of doors to me even though I graduated at the age of 40, 41. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, because it meant I could get different kind of work and I didn't really want to carry on just being a, uh, you know, a machine minder or whatever. Anyway, uh, and then I re-met this guy I'd known when I was sleeping rough and, and breaking windows and stealing from shops when I was 21. Uh, I re-met him in, in, because I saw him on the television with one of my children watching uh, and reconnected. And he'd, he was a, he'd become a multi-millionaire. His name was Gordon Roddick and with Anita Roddick had started the body shop. And then after a few years, he was in New York in 1990 and saw a paper called Street News being sold by some guy in midtown Manhattan. And he was blown away. He spoke to the guy. The guy said, I buy the paper 50 cents, sell it for a dollar. People give me a tip. I work my money. I have come out of the penitentiary. I'm 54. I'm from Brownsville. No one's going to give a big black guy with a, with a prison record a job. Why? Um, and he told his story to Gordon. And Gordon thought, wow, this, is, this man is working his way out of poverty or working his way into a situation of having a sustainable existence. Uh, Gordon came back to the UK, tried to start a street paper by getting the Body Shop Foundation, which him and his wife had set up just after starting the Body Shop about 10 years before, and um, couldn't get anywhere because virtually all of the homeless organizations didn't like the idea that homeless people would have their own money. They didn't like the idea that people would and making enough money so they could buy their own drink and their own drugs. And um, eventually he returned, he came to me and he said, look, you know, why don't you do this? And I said, well, I, I'm not a do-gooder. I've been through, you know, I'm, I'm beaten by, my, by uh, the system. I mean, I'm not beaten, but I mean, I just can't see any way through that charity would work because, you know... It, Charity is just a kind of the crumbs falling off the table, of, you know, of the capitalist uh, of the capitalist meal. And so what I did was uh, I said, look, if you want me to do this, uh, I'd do it as a business. I've done it as a business out of a business-like relationship with the homeless. I wouldn't give them anything. What I'd do is give them opportunity, which is the one thing that they lack. 
And uh, he said, okay. So I went and spoke to a number of the homeless organizations. There were 501 homeless organizations in London alone, and not one of them was giving work to homeless people. You could get everything from from sandwiches to condoms, but you could not get a job out of them. You couldn't get any work. They would put you up, they would feed you and clothe you, but they wouldn't give you any opportunity to, uh, um, uh, to, to, to gain some work, which I found extraordinary because here was this vast organization, um, body of people who worked with homelessness and they were all in work and there was many, many of them, there were thousands of people but they couldn't actually give the homeless what they themselves had and I realized of course it was, there was a great division in the world between them and us them uh, were the people who, who were the poor and then there was us and I thought well, you know I don't want to get involved in anything unless I can make them us if I can transitionalize people out of poverty, if I can become uh, the person who, who moves them on to, to social mobility, then I would have got them out of poverty. Um, and that was extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily simple and dumb because people didn't think that way. They thought, you know, let's help the homeless, let's help the poor, let's feed them. You know, and uh, I was, I was just, I just said, well, you know, you just make them dependent unless, unless there's a trajectory for their social improvement. All you're doing is they're refugees, you know, and then so they're not in a refugee camp in Africa, but they're in a refugee camp in the centre of London. When you were homeless, John, did you think that you could be hired? by an organization or that you would be eating three days from the time you were on the street? I mean, what was your thinking when you were on the street? Well, when I was on the street, I, I was largely avoiding the police. So I was a beggar. Uh, what I found very, very difficult, I mean, there were, you you actually could get work in the 60s and the 70s but because what you had then was you had the working poor. Uh, and now in the UK, what we've got is the unworking poor. Um, there are people who are still poor. Uh, who, I mean, there are people who never make enough money from their from their labours. But what we've managed to grow in the last 25 years is a vast section of people who live on welfare, who 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 have no work, uh, and they are the unworking poor, and, and and they are the most tragically caught people in society. But um, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, you could actually, you could earn your crust. And there were a number of reasons why you had to, because we had very uh, um, hard hard police officers who, who, if they saw you begging, would arrest you for, for vagrancy. If they saw you, uh, uh, for, for, they'd arrest you for begging, and you would, there were many laws in the UK to... to, to the, that say that it's illegal, and then there's the no fixed abode. If you had no fixed abode, if you had nowhere to stay, then you were you were arrested for vagrancy, and you could be put in prison. And in fact, people, uh, much of the prison population in the UK was people going in and out of prison for begging or from for for sleeping rough. That's tragic. Yeah, well, it was tragic, but the, but the point was, uh, what it's replaced it for is something even more tragic. Uh, and that is that you've got people who have a right to sleep in the streets 
um, not they have a right, it's just that the police totally ignore it. So so they they and the magistrates and the social workers just totally ignore it. So you've got the opposite now. What you've got is you've got the tragedy of people sleeping in the streets and not being arrested, but, but arrested. But they have, but the tragedy is they don't do they don't then move them on. They they if at best what they do is they warehouse them off the streets. So now we have an even larger group of people who are stuck. Fifty years ago, when I was pretending I was older than I was and stay, sleeping in, in hostels, I would have to pay for that hostel, so I would have to work for that hostel. And what you had was you had 95% of the occupants would be people who had a job to pay for the hostel and to pay for their food because they couldn't beg and they couldn't sleep in the streets. Now you have this, you have this vast industry of, of, of hostels where they they are uh, paid for by 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 taxpayers' money, and what they do is they just sit around and do nothing. And I swear on my life, if you see these people, they age quicker because they've got no no reason to to get up in the morning, and they, and they've got no purpose in life. And and if they get drunk or they have drug 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 problems, it's money that they've got from the state or they've got from begging off people. Uh, nobody has to work. I mean, when when I um, people say to me, you know, why did I start the big issue? And with a, a, amongst people who uh, are heavy drinkers and heavy drug users, I said, well, look, you know, I want to do what most drink drinkers and, and drug users do. The most drinkers and drug users, if they want to have some drink or some drugs, they ring up a dealer or they go to the they go to the shop and they buy the stuff. The unfortunate tragedy is of homeless people, very, very poor people who have to do that, is they've got to rob somebody or beg it off somebody. So therefore, they've got to humiliate themselves and probably hurt other people in order to feed their habits. And that's why our prisons are full of, of, of tragic people, not just homeless people, who have to hurt somebody or even kill somebody in order to feed their, 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 their vice. And I think... If the big issue does nothing else, it, it stops people having to do terrible things in order to feed the habits. The big drinkers and the big drug users are not the homeless or the poor. It's the people in jobs uh, and the people in work. They, they can, you know, they can do it, you know, because they can afford it. So I, I've always wanted to address that in anomaly. First of all, before you go anywhere else, you know. In terms of the business model, how does the paper work? The way it works in the UK, and it works differently in South Africa, in Taiwan, and in places like Korea, what we've started in since Japan, South America. Uh, um, where, where the way it works is that we meet people who are who are crestfallen, broken. Uh, mostly, I mean, some of them are not because some of them, you know, don't get defeated. Um, but we do deal with a lot of really troubled people. And what they're looking for is they're looking for some money, and they're looking for money that doesn't involve them getting harassed, and it is done with dignity. Uh, uh, when I started the big issue, one of the big reasons I started was because people did say to me, "Anything is better than begging." Um, and so, what happened? What happens to, to they come to us? We give them free papers, we train them up, we look after them, we get coffee for them, we try and get them placed if, if they're sleeping rough. 
Um, we don't always get them into the hostel system because the problem is that uh, hostel systems are pretty hostile places. Uh, but we try and get them housed or try and get them into a kind of community or something like that. But the thing is that what we do is we support them so that they can then start earning their own money and start standing on their own two feet. And that nearly always leads to an incredible transformation. I was going to say that one of the things that being homeless does is that you never know when you're going to eat again. People look at you differently. They treat you differently. And the fact that you're marginalized to that level, a lot of people don't want to give you a job, even if you were qualified to do it. So it's like a catch-22. It is a catch-22 situation. Um, It's much, much different in the UK uh, in some ways. When I worked in the States um, and had dealings with, with, with American homelessness, I think you have a much, much more institutionalized homelessness. I think ours is always a, a, a kind of reflection of sudden economic reversals. You have this kind of uh, home, you have this kind of shifting population, um, you know, between, uh, which I noticed when I was in, in California, People who are who are restless, uh, who move on uh, because of um, you know there's because there's very little social support for them. In the UK, we have we have a, a very large uh, social support for people in need and, and people in poverty. It doesn't always work very well, and it's very crude, and people still fall out onto the streets. But here. Um, we have a, a very strange situation where people on the streets are supported uh, as beggars. I mean, you can make a, a sizable amount of money. You could make more than the, the a working man begging in the in parts of the UK, but they won't give you work, and that's the big tragedy. So, so people I get will that. support you in the streets, but they won't give you work. Uh, uh, and what I've seen in, in the States is, is, uh, is something even worse than that, which is you can't get the work and, and, you, and you can't panhandle because, you, because uh, it's illegal. Uh, and also, uh, a lot of people tend to turn against panhandlers, uh, against beggars. Um, so you've got a real... You've got a difference in, in, in North America and in Europe. In the United States, I know at least five people who've lost their homes, whose finances have dried up, and several people who are literally going from place to place, sleeping on people's couches, etc. This is expanding here in the United States. And I keep trying to tell them, this is not your fault. And the fact that they can't get hired in enough time to create the supply, to then move into their own place with first and last and security, and then their credit goes bad. It ends up being like a vicious cycle here. I don't know if you have a credit rating, for example, in the UK, in order to get a job or to get an apartment if they look at your credit. But here, you can be three months out of work, your credit goes bad, you lose your place, and you're done. You're done here. Uh, I, um, that, uh, I noticed that when I was in the States, and obviously when I was working there quite regularly, it was it, it, it was... You know what's that? Well, you're you're a couple of checks away, away from the streets. Um, we we uh, are not we haven't faced that as as uh, as much as as you. I mean, if you see that Mike Moore film where about those people who are repossessed, 
that's pretty difficult to imagine coping in, in the UK, happening in the UK, because there's more coping mechanisms. But it's coming our way, because what we now have is the biggest economic reversal of fortune since the 30s. Um, and uh, we've got these big... Um, uh, we've got these big cuts in the economy, which are which are going to take place um, early next year. Begin and over the next three four years, we're going to be repaying an enormous amount of money. And um, what we've also had, which I think you've had as well, you've had this vastly increased activity within the economy and the growth of enormous amounts of jobs. Well, a lot of the new jobs. That have disappeared, that are disappearing in in the UK, were built on that kind of risk laden uh, uh, bankers' paradise. You know, the the expansion of credit and all that stuff. And a lot of uh, these jobs have been conjured out of the air. A lot of the social support that has gone has come has been conjured out of the air from from this bank bankers led risk taking subprime, whatever you like to call it. And that's disappearing. So we are going to start getting an American phenomenon, which, which you've had of of people having absolutely nothing to fall back on. We have a situation over here where the local authority has a statutory duty to rehouse people who have fallen into into homelessness. So if you get your place re, if you get your home repossessed, if you lose your mortgage and all that stuff. Then you are, you, 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 there are support mechanisms. What we've been trying to do in the big issue is to say, and this is, is, look, if people can't afford to pay their mortgages, if you actually get them out on the streets, you, you, you put them out on the streets, put them into, then they go into the hostel, the support system, and they then go into social temporary accommodation. That is such a devastating effect on the lives of the young children in particular and older people. Uh, and we said that if they're gonna, if people are gonna be homeless, I mean this is a contradiction. It's best that they're homeless in their own home. And I have been speaking to advocates, um, which I've met at conferences. I haven't been back to the states in the last few years, um, and spoken to people on the phone about how you in America you you have to find there has to be a, a, a method, uh, a safety method uh, that that doesn't really exist. Uh, for for keeping people in their homes because there is absolutely no advantage to the marketplace to there's no advantage to the economy and there's certainly no advantage to the society to see people made into homelessness and they will six months of homelessness will will take six years to get out of your system it's it's, a, it's almost a month a year this is what I've been told, and when I worked in the States, I, I saw people who'd been homeless for three or four years and their lives were totally and utterly destroyed. So we've got to keep people in their homes. And I, and I wouldn't want to be homeless and poor, and I certainly wouldn't want to be losing my mortgage uh, 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 in the United States because, you know, where, where do you end up? There's a huge influx here of people losing their homes and having to then go do apartment living. And then, of course, they're dealing with the fact that they've just lost their homes and their credit is ruined. And then they have to pay many, many, many months of advance to get in a place to live. 
this is going on all over the place. I have a question for you, and I want to keep this short because I know that Paravine is ready for dinner for you. But very, very quickly, you make a distinction between representative democracy and participative democracy, which is kind of the basis of this model with the big issue. Explain that to our audience, please. Well, I think there's a real problem with democracy, and I think there's a real problem with politics. And in the same way, you know, over over the last hundred years, uh, uh, you have this situation where you don't cook your own bread anymore. You don't make, you don't often make your own meals. You, you buy them ready packed or in cans or in in the from the freezer. And I think there's this kind of almost same attitude towards politics, which is you take you take your politics off the shelf, you know. So what you do is you increasingly allow other people to do the, the baking for you and you allow other people to do the politicking. And I feel that what you get is you get this kind of... Uh, of uh, you get the politics you deserve because it, what it means is you, you, you don't make an investment in politics. If you leave politics to everybody else, then you, I call that representational democracy. And representational democracy is important but it has to be combined with participatory democracy. You actually have to participate in politics. whether And you do. And if you don't get involved in politics, then you get the kind of politics and the politicians that none of us really like. You get the politicians that take you into a war. You get the kind of politicians who keep you in a war. And you get the rhetoric and you get all the promise and you get all the people crying because somebody else has got into office and then you get all the thorough disappointments over the next years year or two and then you have to go and look for the next guru the next savior the next uh, uh the next person who's going to make you feel good and then you know you gather around them and you, you're all excited and everybody you know and your heart beats and, and there's tears in your eyes as shown on the tv camera and then, lo and behold, um, that person doesn't, doesn't cut ice, doesn't deliver the goods, largely because no human being can. And I think we need to wake up and stop being eight-year-olds about this. We have to get involved in politics. Politics is that that binds us together. And if we leave politics to people who are professional... I mean, the world is now full of people... Who, who who grow up, who go to the college, uh, leave school, go to the college, go to the university, come out there, play around, do a little bit of work, but they've always got their eyes, you know, bankers, lawyers, you know, lawyers, you know, your administration is full of lawyers. I mean, who, who makes you, th- what makes you think that lawyers have got any better take on the world? They've got no take. It would be, it would like saying, being a like saying that, you know, from now on, everybody who's a milkman uh, is going to be a, a politician. You know, it would be as irrational to, to take most of your, you know, Obama's a lawyer, you know, his foot, the organizations are full of lawyers. Uh. Worse than that, his head of agriculture was the lawyer for Monsanto. Yeah, I mean, you've got this, you've got this kind of, why, why, where are the plumbers? Where are the nurses? Where are the firemen? Where are the... Where are the where are the working classes in politics? Where 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 are the? I tell you what happens: the working classes get in, uh, and they get kind of cleaned up, and they they're made into uh, middle class people, just like all the other politicians. 
we we have elected we have recently elected a leader to the Labour Party. The Labour Party has always been run by highly select members of the middle classes. You don't get any workers running the Labour Party. A few of them group in, uh, but they don't last long, um, and they never get that. So you've got this kind of weird thing that you've got working class politics run by middle class people, uh, and and largely it's because most of the people just don't want to get involved in politics. Now, my attitude is a very simple one. If you come out of your house and there's a blocked drain, what do you do? Do you ignore the blocked drain? If you ignore it, then it's going to become more more evil and evil smelling, uh, and the end is going to make you and your kids uh, um, uh, ill. And a lot of people say, I don't get involved in politics because it stinks. Well, drains stink, but it doesn't mean to say you turn your back on the blocked drain. You clean it out. And we have to cleanse the Aegean stables. We have to clean politics. Politics stinks. And I assure you that there's nobody gets away with it. Um, virtually every politician I have ever met is somebody who does not represent the interest of us all. And it's not possible for them. The only way to represent, represent the interest of us all is to get involved. So we're going to have to give up ours if we want to get out of this criminal uh, uh, um, um, economic collapse of a kind that has never, ever been, it, it's never been like this. Even 1929 was, was, uh, was, was in, a, in a sense, get-outable. The one that we've got now where the whole system is, the whole financial system has been undermined and people just don't know, they don't know how to read the future, the future economic marketplace. And we need to take we need to repossess politics. So I am a believer that we have to move from from uh, just mere representational politics to, rep to participatory politics. And nobody, nobody, no leader, however well talk, however well they talk, however well they do, no leader can get us out of this. Unless we become the leaders, we all have to take over the role of leaders. And I tell you, and I just give you a little. I'll give you just a little anecdote uh, because I have been talking too much. When I started, <laughs> you weren't going anywhere. It's okay. Not going anywhere in terms of public awareness. And one morning, about eight thirty in the morning, uh, this uh, this guy who ran a big advertising company was looking to. He'd just taken over a new position, and he was looking to do some campaigns because campaigns mean that the advertisers win awards, which means they get more clients. And they normally highlight our, our charity, and they look, we're looking at homelessness. And they rang about five different, this guy rang about five different homeless organizations, and all they got was a recording. They got to the big issue at 8.30, and they, the, the, the receptionist said, hello, good morning, this is a big issue. And the guy said, uh, I, I want to talk to, what's the guy who runs it, John Bird? Uh, I want to talk to him about some advertising opportunities. So, well, Mr. Bird's not in at the moment, and, but his PA will be in in about 15 minutes. If you give me your details, uh, et cetera. So he went, oh, all right. So he gave the details. All right. My PA came in, and at 9 o'clock I was in, and I rang this guy up, and this guy got us about a million dollars worth of free advertising raised our profile so much that, and it got us to help explain what the difficult thing that we were doing with the homeless totally transformed the fortunes of the big issue. 
Well, who was the most important person in that? Me? No. You know, he, he, he fell in love. He got bought by the person who spoke to him, first of all, the smallest cog in the wheel. And that cog was the most important cog. We've got this weird idea that leadership is always from the top. Leadership is from every level in society. And that receptionist, who actually was away the next week, because she was a temporary, she was a girl from New Zealand, if he'd rung up the previous week, I'll tell you what he'd got. He'd go, hello, yes? Uh, sorry, Mr. Burr's not in at the moment. Um, um, uh, leave us your number. Yeah, all right. Yeah. And that, we got rid of that woman, and we, that's why we had the temporary. And people don't realize leadership is, is, is at every level. We all need to take leadership, and we all need to participate in society. And if we don't, we get a crummy society that has oil leaks all over the place, that has destroyed communities, that, that destroys the, the jobs of working people, that causes poverty and all that. And all of this is because we gave politics and the future to bankers and lawyers and all those people, and they're the bright people. You know, I tell you what, if anybody came to my office and said they'd been to the Harvard University and they were the highest achiever, I'd say, can you go somewhere else, please? Because I don't want another crisis. I really want to ask you more questions, and I'd like to invite you back to do part two of its rainmaking time. You're so passionate, and there's so much to get into with this. Would you do me the honor of coming back and talking to I us? I would love to. And where are you based? In Los Angeles, California, but I'm coming to London in December, and I'd oh, like to make some rain with you. <laughs> yeah. And where do you live in L.A.? Because I lived there for... You did. Yeah. I'm in the Toluca Lake area, right near Burbank. I used to live in Venice when it was, it was, it, I think now it's, it's kind of been cleaned up a lot, but I lived in Venice and we had an office in Pico Union, uh, and we had an office, you know, we worked down in Skid Row. Yeah. Uh, some of the best times I ever had was, was, was in, uh, was in, in LA. I, yeah. I absolutely loved it. I thought, I thought, I actually thought, what's so interesting about America? You've got so many problems that you've got so much ambition and passion. When we went down to Compton and we met a whole group of young black guys uh, who were talking to us about, you know, they, they said, look, you know, we don't want any more training. We don't want, we want a job. We want a future. We want to have families and all sorts of stuff. And that, that passion, uh, you don't always get over here. You, you get over here, you get people beaten and defeated by welfareism. And it really is horrible to see how just giving people a little bit of money and saying, go away, park yourself over there and forget about the future really does. It enlarges the size of the poor. It breaks us. But I would love to, I would love to, uh, to talk with you. And when you come over to, uh, 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 to, to London, please, in December, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere, please do come and talk with us. And we'll tell you about our new plans to have an e-magazine, uh, e the Big Issue World, which will be available all over the world, and which is a unique way of working with homeless people off the streets, turning homeless people into editors, giving homeless people middle-class jobs. Whenever you talk to a lot of these people who work with the poor, what they do is they, they get them jobs washing cars or waiting tables or something. I want to give them good middle-class jobs, cultural jobs, the kind of jobs that I ended up getting 
but it took me a long time to get there. I am what well, I was one of them, and now I'm one of us. And I am <laughs> totally convinced that them and us don't. It's an artificial barrier. We need to open the floodgates. Um, in the poorest of communities, it's not any great music and great culture, but great leaders. And maybe uh, we should be closing down Harvard and 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 opening up. Uh, not closing down Harvard, but we should not be listening to the Harvard-trained leaders. We should be looking amongst our poorest people and training them up and skilling them up because they can be they could lead the world in a much much more sensible way because they 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 would have a grasp of what it's like to be without. I'll tell you something. I'll leave you with that. And thank you very much. <laughs> I'm so excited about what you're doing and what you're tapping into. Have you ever met Mohammed Yunus of the Grameen Bank? Well, I have met Mohammed, and in fact, uh, in 1992, we were uh, when the big issue had only been open about nine months. Uh, one of my staff, who was whose job was to have their their uh, antennae up for international work, because we're always looking for projects that work elsewhere. And she said, you know, you got to meet this guy who's coming to London. He's a Pakistani, who's from Bangladesh. Uh, he, 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 he's he got this micro credit. And she explained it to me. And I said, wow. So he came over and we supported him and we promoted him and introduced him to people. And were, we were probably the first people in the UK to take him quite seriously, other than, you know, the the, the, the official people who... Paid to take it quite seriously. We, we were very, very taken by him, and we supported him all along. I'm making a movie about uh, uh, about poverty and about how uh, to end poverty. You you've got to stop looking upon the poor as cats and dogs. You know you've got to look upon them first of all as, as members of your own species. I think there's a terrible them and us. Uh, in fact, I often so, sorry about this. I often upset people because I say, you know, what's the difference between Brad Pitt and um, a, lots of other givers? And, and, and they say, what, what? And I say, well, Brad Pitt may get a, a bit of bad press, but the thing is what he's done and what I think we all ought to do is he takes the poor home with them and makes them members of his family. I'm a great believer we should be adopting the children of the poor. Uh, and if that adoption, you don't have to bring them here. You you just have to look upon the poor of, of Africa and India. You've got to look upon them as your own children. Uh, and I, I, you know, there are a lot of kinky things and wrong things going about Hollywood and all that. But when you hear somebody actually make enlarging his family, you know, that's that's serious. That's serious help because most people say, I love the poor, but I don't want to take them home with me. That's actually a whole other thing. And the reason I asked you, had you met Dr. Eunice, is that he's bringing in microcredit, as you know, as a poverty elimination vehicle. I think you have another piece of the mosaic. It not only is providing a method and a paradigm on how to view the homeless, how to receive the homeless, how to train and work with the homeless, but also how to provide real income, real work to bring that dignity back and to bring life back. There's more I want to talk to you about, and I've learned a lot listening to you on the show, and I really hope you will join me for another one before I get to England. <laughs> that would be very good. All the answers are there. All we got to do is connect them up. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.